This message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. At the end, we will give information about how to contact us to receive a copy of this or other messages. All right, well, let's, uh, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It's a marvelous passage. We're going we're gonna to read the whole section so that we can keep the context in view. Starting at verse 1, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, men of the Spirit, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of, a, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire." And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as through fire. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God... God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Well, in this passage, um, thanks, Steve. In this passage, uh, Paul begins in chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, and he uh, basically finally gets around to explicitly diagnosing the Corinthians' fundamental problem. And that is that they were infantile in their thinking. They were immature in their faith. They were babes in Christ. In fact, Paul uses language which would have uh, actually just struck a chord, probably of anger with them by telling them that far from being spiritual, they were actually carnal, fleshly. And the proof, of course, is the jealousies, the strife, the contentions, 
the partisan spirit, the very idea that, that you had people boasting, I belong to Paul, I belong to Apollos. And Paul says the fact that those kinds of divisions exist among you demonstrate that you're walking, you're living just like ordinary human beings. That's what ordinary human beings do. Those are the those are the carnal and base loyalties of ordinary human beings. You are supposed to be people of the spirit. You are supposed to be people uh, that that are of the age to come. You are supposed to be people who who live in a different sphere, a different realm, under a different dominion, and instead you're just acting like everybody else. That's the diagnosis. And boy, what a good reminder for us during this election season, right? What a good reminder. The person who just simply attaches themselves to another human being as if that person is their hope is actually just a carnal, spiritually immature person. Our only hope, I remind you, is of course the Lord Jesus. And what Paul does is after he diagnoses in in some pretty stark terms the Corinthians' problem, in verses 5 to 9, he then gives the true perspective of gospel ministers. You see, this is part of their problem is that they had this, this celebrity mentality and they had this superstar mentality of, of their leaders. And Paul then now wants to remind them, do you realize how foolish it is to say, I am of Paul and I am of Apollos because at the end of the day, all we are are servants. All we are are God's servants working together. All we are are plowboys and water boys in God's kingdom. That's all. And, and, and Paul makes it very, very clear in, in, in 5 through 9, you know what, each one of us has, we have our own work, our own responsibility that God has given to us, our own calling, if you will, our own gifts, and, and, and we do those things. But you know, we're not doing, we're, we don't have two different things going, we don't have three different programs going, we don't have as many preachers, as, uh, as many programs as preachers, the one who waters, the one who plants, we're doing the same thing. There's one purpose, there's one goal, because it's one work and it's God's work. Then Paul says something interesting as he's trying to remind the Corinthians of the realistic status of gospel ministers. And that is, he says, you know, each one, even though we're doing the same work, each one will be evaluated according to the work that they do. And there's going to be reward for labor to each one. That then leads Paul into the passage that we looked at last time, verses 10 through 15, where Paul then begins to lay out for the Corinthians something that should have been very sobering to them. And that is, as you think about gospel ministers, as you think about those who labor, you have to understand this. I laid the foundation in Corinth. 
And that foundation was through the preaching of the gospel, and that foundation is none other than Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the only foundation to the church. Now that I'm gone off the scene, there are others who are building on it, but they better be careful how they build. You understand, this is a warning to the Corinthians to be exercising some quality control over who they are allowing to build into the church. Paul then makes it abundantly clear that you have some people and they're building with gold, silver, and precious stones, and you have other people that are building with wood, hay, and stubble. And of course, the the fundamental difference between those two types of building materials is that one is valuable and lasts, and the other is combustible and is easily consumed. And Paul says, here's here's the thing, is that everyone who is building is going to have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account, and their work is going to be tested as by fire. Absolutely sobering thing. Remember, the emphasis, the focal point is on on leaders, is on those who preach, those who teach, those who who are, um, as it were, building onto the church. And there there is this sobering reality that one of these days, the work which we have done will, in fact, go before the eyes of the one who knows and sees all things. And he will judge not only the value of the work, but I have no doubt that he will judge the the motives of our hearts. And Paul says, that is a sobering thing. And, and, and after that, it's all over. By the way, that's, this is not some sort of junior high athletic award ceremony. Okay? Sometimes we, we sort of um, downplay the significance of the judgment that's presented as if it's just some sort of awards banquet and uh, people get up and give little speeches about how much their mom and dad meant to them. That's not the picture at all. There's fire here. There is fire here. And, and what Paul makes abundantly clear is that when, when, when your work passes through the, 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 the one who has eyes as a flame of fire, whatever's left, you get a reward. But if nothing's left, you'll be saved as by fire, but you will suffer loss. What this passage does for us, and of course the, the focus is on, on leaders, pastors, preachers, so forth. But, but what this passage does for us is it reminds us that on that last day, it is going to be a sobering day. There will be... Um, No fooling anybody on that day. Because the only one who matters is the one who, according to Romans chapter 2, is the one who judges according to truth. The one who absolutely knows everything. And and this this is the thing that should cure us of hypocrisy once and for all. And and that is this. We can fool people that are around us. 
And we can make them think that we are something that we are not. But there is coming a day, and and, and it may happen before that day, but there's coming a day in which all hypocrisy, all lies, all shams, all facades will be incinerated. And what we are will be fully exposed. Now, that brings us to the next section. We're only going to look at two verses tonight. Understand what Paul's done. He's warning the Corinthians regarding the building of the church and warning those who would dare to take that role of building on the foundation. You know, James warns, not many of you should be teachers, my brethren. For one simple reason, knowing that teachers will incur a stricter judgment. And, and do, you, do you know what, what discussion ensues after that declaration in James 3? How easy it is to sin with the tongue. And so, what Paul's going to do now is he is going to remind the Corinthians who and what they are, and then he's going to give a solemn warning to those who would dare destroy the church. And this obviously, 16 and 17, obviously very clearly relates to um, uh, what has gone before 3, 1 through 15, But Paul emphasizes with gravity, with a seriousness that should catch our attention, what the church is and what God promises to do to those who would harm her. Mm. Well, we start with verse 16, and we, of course, know this. We probably have this verse memorized. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, right off the bat, there should be something that sort of catches your attention, and that is the fact that Paul says, do you not know? Now, what's what's interesting about this is that Paul uses this exact phrase, do you not know? In the book of Corinthians, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine more times. Do you not know? This is, uh, this is what I'd like to call the ignorance inquiry. Okay. Now, if, if we just took a look at some of these, um, just take a look at this. Uh, chapter 5, I, I want you to get a feel for the nature of this question. Paul says in chapter 5 and verse 6, he says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? All right. Chapter 6, verse 1. Does any of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know? 
that the saints will judge the world. If the world's judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? Look at verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor swindlers, revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You kind of get a a, a picture of how this do you not know works. Um, Let's see, look at verse 18. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Paul does this a number of other times. Once he gets to chapter 9. What's interesting is, do you not know? We might go, okay, well, maybe Paul's just asking an honest question. Don't you know this? That's not the point of the question. In fact, in fact, when you get over to Thessalonians, who were actually relatively young believers compared to the Corinthians, if you just think about the time that Paul spent respectively in each location, Paul says at least six times something like this. As you know. But you yourselves know. So I would submit to you that the very question, do you not know, has first of all an accusatory tone to it. Paul is rebuking them. There is is an appeal in this question, do you not know? There's an appeal to conscience. There is an implicit accusation that they should have a much higher view of the dignity of the church and a much higher view of their own dignity as the church than they really do. It's as if Paul is saying something like this. You should know this, but from all appearances, it seems to me like you don't. Do you not know, and then here is the statement, that you, plural, are the temple of God. That you are the temple of God. Now, what's unmistakable here in this is the emphasis. It's second person, plural. You, body, you, community of faith, you are the temple of God. The the emphasis here is not on the individual. It is the community that Paul sees as the temple of God. Now, are individual believers the temple of the Holy Spirit? Yes. Uh, In in fact, in the passage you just read, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, I think it's very clear that Paul is, is, is saying that individual believers, their, their very body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But by the way, that's not the primary emphasis in the New Testament. The primary emphasis is on the corporate body as the temple. And so here's the emphasis, and he, he says you're God's temple. Now, guess what there were lots of in Corinth? Temples. 
big ornate temples, fancy temples, temples with, with big columns and all kinds of, of, of art and, and just, you know, a, a lot of uh, aesthetic um, beauty to these temples. And Paul says, you, Corinthian community of believers, you are the temple of God. Now, you have to understand that Paul's not just making some sort of churchy kind of comment. Okay. Right? He's not he's not making just some sort of sanctimonious sounding, you know, you're the temple. He actually says you're the temple for a very good reason. And that is because the idea of the people of God as the temple of God is the very consummation of the theme of the dwelling place of God in the whole Bible. And so if you remember back to Genesis chapter 2, I don't know how long ago that was. It was a little while ago. How long ago were we in Genesis 2, Carolyn? No, it's not five years. It might seem like it. <laughs> it was a while ago, but you, you might remember that I preached a sermon on the garden as a temple, right? And you have the garden temple. And of course, the whole idea is, is that Adam and Eve are dwelling together with God in this garden temple. Now, of course, they sin and they get exiled from the garden temple. But what's the first thing that happens once the children of Israel are delivered from the land of Egypt and are in the wilderness? And you see this beginning in Exodus 24 as you start to see these very explicit instructions for them to build what? The tabernacle. And the tabernacle, by the way, God explicitly says to Moses multiple times in the book of Exodus, you are to build this, how? Strictly according to the pattern which I show you. In other words, there's no room for constructive creativity, Moses. You do everything exactly the way that I show you. And we start to realize when we get to the book of Hebrews that the reason that God does that is because that earthly tabernacle was reflecting a heavenly tabernacle. And of course, what happens? The tabernacle is built. Now, it, it's, it's somewhat a modest dwelling place for God. It's, it's made out of sea cow skins and it's, you know, it, it probably wasn't really that striking. Um, but this was the place where you had the holy place and then the holy of holies. And in that inner sanctuary, the holy of holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant. And one day a year, the priest could go in on Day of Atonement and offer sacrifice, first for his sins, then for the sins of the people, cover the sins of the people. But when Moses dedicates that tabernacle, do you know what happens? The Shekinah, that is the manifest glory of God, fills that tabernacle. Now, that tabernacle is packed up, rolled up, stuck into its uh, nylon container, or however they carried it around. Uh, This is just a big tent. And then, of course, we get to David. So you have to fast forward almost 500 years, and you get to David. And what is David's heart's desire? He wants to build God what? 
a temple. Now, you remember why, right? Here I live in this really nice cedar house and God lives in this ratty old tent that we've been carrying around for 400 years, right? And so God says, you can collect the materials, but you're not going to get to build it because you're a man of blood. So Solomon, your son, is going to get to build it. And so Solomon builds it and it is extravagant, right? I mean, this is, this is a magnificent edifice. Again, what happens, 1, Corinthians, or 1 Kings chapter 8, uh, Solomon actually um, prays the dedicatory prayer. And what happens is that the, the visible manifestation of the glory of God so fills the temple at that point that it drives the priests out. And now God dwells in the temple. So he goes from the garden to the tabernacle, which is in the midst of the people, to the temple, which is on sacred space in Jerusalem, in the midst of the people. And that temple represents the dwelling place of God. Now, make no mistake about it. There was no, no Jewish person that thought our God, the creator of heaven and earth, lives inside of this temple. Solomon says it on the very day that he dedicates it. The heavens and the heavens, heavens can't contain you, much less this temple. Paul would tell the philosophers on Mars Hill that God does not dwell in temples made with hands. But it's a symbol. It's a symbol that God's dwelling in the midst of his people. Why? Why is that such an important symbol? Well, because the very essence of the covenant promise is this. I will be your God, you'll be my people, and I'll dwell in the midst of you. And so there he was, dwelling in the midst with Adam and Eve in the garden, and then dwelling in the midst of the camp of Israel with the tabernacle, and then dwelling in the land, in the temple. And all of those things foreshadowed the greatest event ever when God became human flesh and pitched his tent among us. John 1, 14, and we beheld his glory, glories of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. And in fact, what John does is he connects all of these dots back to the Old Testament and basically says that which the, that which the tabernacle foreshadowed, that which the temple foreshadowed is now fulfilled in Jesus Christ. God is dwelling in the midst of his people, fulfilling the covenant promise by taking on human flesh. It's magnificent, absolutely magnificent. And in fact, Jesus explicitly declares this when he says in John 2, 19, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up on the third day. It took us 46 years and we're still not done yet. And then the disciples knew the temple of which he spoke was his body. And so Paul puts it like this in Colossians 2, that in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Jesus Christ is the very fulfillment of the dwelling place of God among men. But of course, Jesus earthly ministry in his incarnation was going to be a temporary 
epoch in redemptive history. And so Jesus is crucified, died, buried, and then 40 days later, he ascends into heaven. And as he ascends into heaven, he promises to his disciples, what is he going to do? He's going to send his Holy Spirit. And now his people will be the new dwelling place of God by virtue of the Spirit. If you love me and my Father loves you, we will come and make our abode, our dwelling with you. John 14, 23. Paul speaks about us being a temple in Ephesians 2, 19 through 21. Peter speaks about us being a temple in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5, where we're actually a temple, a spiritual house, making up a spiritual priesthood made out of living stones that have been brought together into a temple of praise to God. And so now... The very, the very reality of Jesus as the dwelling place of God is now being lived out through his church. It's no accident, by the way, that Paul calls the church the body of Christ. Because the body of Christ and the temple of God are are, are in, a, in a real sense sort of co-equal kinds of statements. And so we as the body of Christ, what does that mean? It means that we are the dwelling place of God himself. Corporately, where does God dwell? He, an hour is coming and now is where people will no longer worship in this mountain, Mount Gerizim, or in Jerusalem. For the Father is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. In other words, Jesus is saying to the woman at the well that there's coming a time in which there would no longer be sacred geographical space because there's going to come a time when you, as the people of God, will be the sacred geographical space. Now, that's pretty great. So here's, let's say just for sake of argument that we have, let's say five or six house churches in Corinth that are made up of anywhere between 75 to 100 people each. And they meet in somebody's house, wealthy person who'd have a large hall or parlor. And uh, so here are these people. And uh, so just imagine a Sunday morning in Corinth. And let's say, let's say the house of Stephanus is uh, where one of the churches in Corinth is located. And you see people filing in on, uh, on a Sunday morning to go to church at Stephanus's house. What kind of people do you see? You see slaves, primarily. You see a few rich people, but not many. You see ordinary people. Remember back to chapter 1, not many mighty, not many noble, not many well-born according to the flesh. You see a ragtag group of the most discombobulated conglomeration of people that you could imagine. Pretty much like what 
we see tonight. And all throughout Corinth, there are these magnificent temples, and then there are these ramshackle, ragtag, motley crews called the temple of God. Now, the Corinthians, they were slow. I might remind you. You could well imagine the Corinthians thinking to themselves, I I know that we're the temple of God, but man, the temple of Cybele, wow. They've got greeters, ushers, carpet, gold, statues. It's magnificent, high ceilings, arches. And Paul says, this is, this is the fundamental problem with you Corinthians. Is you, you have yet to realize the fundamental antithesis between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of this world. The wisdom of this world says, wow, look at the temple. Wow, look at the pillars. Look at the arches. Look at the frescoes. Look at all of that magnificent stuff. And God says, no, forget all of that. I could knock that down. I could go like that and send it all the way over to Africa. And But you know, want to see something beautiful? Look at this group of people who used to be gypsies and tramps and thieves and they're all praising my son and together they are the dwelling place of my spirit and so Paul says don't you know don't you know you are the temple of God And then he says, and the spirit of God dwells in you. In other words, the the consummate blessing of the new covenant reality of God dwelling in your midst is now happening by virtue of the Holy Spirit. Do you know what happens? And so as we gather together, it doesn't matter whether it's a Sunday night or, or a, a Wednesday night or a Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon, it doesn't make any difference. As we gather together, do you know what we're doing? We are, we are the spirit people of Jesus who are gathering together and corporately now make up the dwelling place of God in which the Holy Spirit dwells, the Holy Spirit himself, and therefore we are All, if you're a child of God, you are equipped to minister and to serve and to worship and to do good to those around you. You have a place in the body, a function, a gift, a role that's empowered by the Holy Spirit. Wow, we we, we sell this short, don't we? We sell it short. In fact, I'm absolutely convinced of this very thing, that if, let's just say, if Grace Community Church fully understood her identity as the temple of God and the temple in which the Spirit of God dwelt, that we would burst at the seams every time the doors were open. Do we not know Do we not know that we are 
the temple of God. Now, there's something that's, that's, you, you can't miss here, and that is Paul's already explained the, the crucial role of the Spirit in helping us to understand the wisdom of God in the message of Christ and Him crucified. But now what Paul's saying is, is the Spirit of God is the very presence and power of God that actually brings us together as the temple of God. So in other words, He's not only the Spirit that reveals wisdom to us, but He's also the Spirit that creates unity among us. That's that if you're a child of God, this is what we have in common. I mean, I, I know that we live in, you know, the Carson Valley in Nevada, and you know, I mean, let's face it, there's not like a whole lot of diversity here, ethnically speaking. This is not a reflection of heaven. Um it's a tiny reflection of heaven, but there's a lot that's missing here. But you have to understand that really what binds us together. No matter what the color of your skin, what, what your gender, your socioeconomic class, what binds us together is the fact that the Spirit of Christ dwells in us. So that's Paul's, that's Paul's grand theological point. You have to know this. Hey, Corinthians, God's field, God's God's building, God's temple. Know who you are. Know what you are. And then he says this. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. This is... uh, a severe warning. Okay. Now, if you notice in your notes, I have Lex Talianus. Anybody remember their Latin? This is, of course, the phrase that is used when we describe the concept or the principle that the punishment fits the crime. In fact, the very structure of verse 17 it follows the structure of what is called not only in biblical but extra-biblical literature, sentence of holy law. It has the echo of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It is the idea of retributive justice. And in fact, verse 17 is a verse that we typically don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about because we kind of read over it kind of quickly because we get so excited about verse 16. And yet, here is what God is saying, is that the, the church of God is the temple of God. It's the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And if anyone destroys the temple of God, God will destroy that one. God is allowed to demonstrate retributive justice because he's holy. The text reads uh, in, in the original awkwardly, but that's because of the kind of structure that is, that is being conveyed. If anyone the temple of God destroys will destroy this one God himself. 
There's a few things to point out about this statement of divine justice. First, destroys in the first line is in the present tense. If anyone is destroying, this is in, in process, not notice it's not has destroyed. If anyone is destroying, and then I would also point out that the very structure, what we call a, a chiasm, so you, so you have an A, B, B, A structure, it emphasizes this fact that it is God himself who will destroy the one who destroy, is destroying the church. In fact, the last word in the sentence in the Greek text is God. In Greek, you can actually put a word in a certain location for emphasis, and it's either in the first slot or the last slot. The last word in this sentence is God. Now this, of course, is, is, should be seen in light of 3, 10 through 15, people building wood, hay, stubble, gold, silver, precious stones, of course. But there's something that's much more serious, much more sobering about it than, than that. It's not only a connection to the fact that, that God is keeping his eye on those who impact the church. There is, a, in a sense, an escalation. Because at least in 3, uh, 10 to 15, the last line is, and if, if his work is destroyed, he will suffer loss and yet be saved as through fire. But here it is, the one destroying the church will in fact be destroyed. The great old uh, Southern Baptist Greek scholar, A.T. Robertson, I I, I must have read this 20 years ago, and it's always stuck with me. He takes this phrase, and he says, The church wrecker, God will wreck. Here's the reason. For the temple of God is holy, and such you, plural, are. Uh, You have to understand... God's temple, God's sanctuary, God's dwelling place, it's holy. And so as a result, the punishment is so severe because of the value of the church. The punishment is so severe because of the value of the temple. The temple of God is a holy place. And of course, you understand that Paul is now not talking about um, uh, an edifice that people gather in. He's talking about the community itself as the church, as the temple of God. And so what he's saying is, is the punishment is so severe because of God's incredible value that he places upon his people as his very dwelling place. They are a people for his own possession. They are a people that he has redeemed with the blood of his own son. They are dear as the apple of his eye. And this is why he will wreck those who try to wreck the church. And then then Paul says this, and such are you. Such are you. This is... um, This is what we would call a functional imperative. It's not technically an imperative, but it functions like an imperative. So get get the feel for this. For 
The temple of God is holy and such you are. What's the implication? Be holy. (laughs) You're the temple of God. Be holy. You must be holy. You are the temple of God. You don't, you don't have the option of, uh, let's see, what kind of Christian life do I want to live? The holy kind or the non-holy kind? That's not the option. If you're the temple of God, the Spirit of God dwells in you, and he is the Holy Spirit, and by virtue of his indwelling, his people are holy. And so Paul's saying, here's the reason why God takes this so seriously. Because he loves the place, the people where his name dwells. The threat here, by the way, is real destruction. Now, let's just make a few concluding observations. First of all, this passage has direct bearing on the exhortation of the second part of verse 10 on be careful how you build. Think about for a moment heretics and false teachers, people who ruin Christian lives and Christian churches by bad teaching. Literally one hour before Bible study started, I saw this article. It was on Easter Sunday. It was an Easter Sunday profile that sparked the controversy, featured on CBS Sunday morning. Joel Osteen, pastor of Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas, told reporter Tracy Smith why he will not preach about hell. This is what he says. People already feel guilty enough. They're not doing what they should, raising their kids, so forth, and we can all find reasons. So I want them to come to Lakewood and our meetings and be lifted up to say, you know what, I may not be perfect, but I'm moving forward. I'm doing better. I think that motivates people to do better. Doing better doesn't get you to heaven. Helping people feel just lifted up because they've had a bad week doesn't bring them closer to God. These are the words of a physician who cannot heal. A physician who who refuses to diagnose a fatal illness. These are the words of somebody who says, peace, peace, when there is no peace. I want people to like coming to church. I want people to feel good about Jesus. I'm absolutely delighted when you feel terrible about yourself. If it leads you 
to look into Christ. This kind of, this kind of stuff destroys the church. This kind of stuff destroys people's souls. God takes it seriously. I mean, every once in a while I do turn them on and Ariel walks in, she has absolutely no tolerance. I want to kind of hear what he's saying so that I have, you know, some ammunition and stuff. And she walks in and she gets so upset. Why are you watching this? Turn it off. Yeah. (laughs) Do I need to remind you of not that many years ago when Harold Camping came on his worldwide radio network and told everybody the church age is over, leave your churches. Church wreckers, God will wreck. The second thing that this passage tells us is that it's a warning, not from threats from really the outside, but more from within. Do you remember Paul's words to the Ephesian elders when he says, uh, after my departure, this is 2930, after my departure, savage wolves will come in, not sparing the flock, right? So, savage wolves from the outside, but also men from among you will rise up and lead many astray. The biggest enemy of the church is not ISIS. The biggest enemy of the church is what's inside. And so I think of, for instance, church leaders who are authoritarian and misrepresent the very character of our Lord Jesus. I think of ministries and and church leaders who are image-driven, who are bullies, who are angry, who are domineering and controlling and manipulative and who are greedy and who are always above criticism and church wreckers God will wreck. But I also think of congregants who gossip and sow discord and and try to create division among the brethren. Church wreckers God will wreck. Boy, that last day is going to be so shocking to so many people who looked so good while they were in service and they had their Sunday best on and their shoes were shined and their ties were straight and then they'd go home and criticize this person and that person and badmouth this and badmouth that and eat everybody for lunch, including the pastor, and then they can't figure out why their kids don't want to go to church anymore when they're 18. We don't have time for a thorough description of this, but a description of church wreckers. Think about what Paul says in one eleven and 3.3. Divisive and contentious people can be church wreckers. The boastful and the arrogant, one twenty nine, three twenty one, four six and 7, 18 to 19, and 8.1. Okay, just by the way, it's just a few examples. 
the boastful and the arrogant, those who always sit above the word and sit above others and have this, have this inherent sense of self-importance and um, w- wouldn't serve anybody to save their lives, but w- certainly welcome being served at any and every opportunity. Or think of chapter 5, verses 1 to 2 and verse 6 and, and the immorality and the tolerating sin. And here's the amazing thing about that passage is that Paul says that there is an immorality that exists among you that does not, is not even mentioned among the Gentiles. And you've become arrogant. You've become proud. You think you're so tolerant. So loving, so accepting. And Paul turns around. He says, you're you're proud. Your arrogance has elevated you above God himself. Lack of love, 13, 1 through 3. Bad doctrine, 15, 33 to 34. I'd remind you, it's in the heavenly doctrinal section of 1 Corinthians 15 that Paul says, do not be deceived, bad company, but evil associates corrupt good, healthy standards. For Paul, doctrine and ethics are bound absolutely together, and the, the, the bad associates are those who teach bad doctrine, and it ends up affecting and corrupting the life of God's people. And then Paul turns around right after that in verse 34, and he says, stop sinning! Because some of you don't even have the knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Finally, the text underscores for us how important the local church is to God. You know, I love my wife. And there are, there are a lot of things that I will tolerate and put up with, maybe not as many as I think, but you come up and say something nasty about my wife, I might act like one of these Corinthians in a carnal moment. How do you think the Lord Jesus feels when his bride, whom he loves and has shed his blood for, is the topic of your gossip and slander and derision? Church wreckers, God will wreck. Gordon Fee says, this is one of the few texts in the New Testament where we are exposed to an understanding of the nature of the local church, God's temple indwelt by his spirit, and where the concluding warning makes it clear how important the local church is to the one and only God. And so I tell you tonight that God loves his church and so should we. Don't you dare be a church wrecker. For some reason, there's a strange thing that happens when somebody comes from one church to another church. And this happened a couple years ago. I was, I was walking out over by the offices and this guy was following me and he starts, he starts bad-mouthing a guy that's a local pastor. And I said, you need to stop. 
And uh, he goes, well, I mean, I'm not gossiping or anything. I said, well, it kind of sounds like you are. And uh, I said, I, I, don't, I don't listen to bad reports. I said, I know that brother. And he's a servant of Christ. We should be quick to defend our Lord's people. Timothy Dwight, I love thy church, O God. Her walls before thee stand. Dear is the apple of thine eye, engraven on thy hand. Let's pray. Father, we pray tonight that you would help us to take this this warning to heart. Lord, it is so easy for us to sin with our tongues. It's so easy for us to sin with bad attitudes. It's so easy for us to be filled with pride and to think that we know better than everybody else. And then in so doing, we end up wrecking your people. God, have mercy on us. Help us to be true lovers of the church of our Lord Jesus. Help us to love his temple. Help us to love his people. Have mercy on us. Father, we we rejoice tonight that we are your temple and your spirit dwells in us. Blessed be your holy name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. To receive a copy of this or other messages, call us at area code 775-782-6516 or visit our website, gracenevada.com.